0: A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. That's a classic John Maxwell and one of my favorite quotes on leadership. We really could spend quite some time unpacking the power of that statement today. And perhaps we will return to it again in a future episode. But today, today is a special day. It's another featured Leader Friday. And our guest today is someone who I believe lives out the truth of that quote in spades. Dr. Heather Levec is an assistant vice president at East Tennessee State University and the executive director of undergraduate admissions. I've personally worked with Heather and her team for many years, giving me the unique privilege of seeing Heather's strong leadership prowess through the eyes of her colleagues who respect and follow her lead with confidence. I'm very happy she agreed to let me turn on the microphones and to invite this community to listen in on a casual, insightful conversation we enjoyed together last fall at the NACCAC conference. I'm Creighton Dent. Welcome back to the Campus Leader Podcast. Heather, I'm so glad to be sitting with you again. The last time we were face to face, we were at a conference in New Orleans riding out a tropical storm together, and not only did we survive it, you survived and completed your doctoral dissertation too. Congratulations on being conferred your PhD last year. Now I'm curious And I know my listeners will be curious too, as many may be considering enrolling in a terminal degree program to advance their own careers in higher ed. What was the experience like? How has the experience informed you in your role at East Tennessee and your strategies, or has it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, early on, people say to you, when you go to write your dissertation, do it about something you're doing. Uh-huh. Because first of all, it'll be easier to write, you're passionate about it, and that was so true for me. I, I felt like I was yeah. living out everything these students were saying to me. And um, we it confirmed some things we were doing and that we should be doing, and it also made us change some thoughts on how we were doing things. And so right. we've, we come back to it often of, Uh, really that personalized approach for recruitment was Mm. the biggest thing that came out of that. And we were already doing a lot of that, but we've been able to capitalize on these students told us this worked. And so we need to keep doing this, you know, and we need other people to be a part of that process. We need deans and the president and the provost to see that personal interaction being of such a value.
0: Sure. You know, higher education has cultivated this expectation that If you want to succeed, if you want to advance, you must have a terminal degree. And we understand historically how we arrived here, right? Universities forever were run and operated by the faculty. This idea of an administrator, an academic civilian, if you will, someone leading a university whose origins are not from the faculty, It's a fairly modern concept, so our previous expectations around education requirements transferred from the academy onto the administration. And I hear it all the time from middle managers on campuses. I love the work I do. I'd like to make a career of this, but I don't know if I have the time The energy or the ability to go into debt for another degree just to keep doing the kind of work I'm already doing, making the kind of money I'm already making. Oh, and then my previous guest, Nathan, he spoke to the churn, the attrition we're observing on college campuses of both staff and faculty. And then he forecasted that we may see a reverse hiring trend of very experienced, very successful leaders from outside higher ed who are tired of working 60 to 80 hours a week and are ready for a job that isn't just trading time for money, but it connects their work with their purpose. But for many of those folks who do not have terminal degrees, is that a barrier? In other words, in your experience, can you quantify the value of pursuing a terminal degree for people interested in pursuing a career in campus leadership? And do you believe this should still be a minimum requirement for our administrations or... Are times uh, do they be a changing
1: you know my personal opinion on that is that you can be an amazing administrator uh-huh. and not have that terminal degree right and my journey is I was in a director role, got asked to serve in a in a director of admissions role, kind of very unexpectedly, was in a program to get a doctorate degree but thought that it may end. Uh I thought, okay, I'm not gonna be able to do both of these things. And I somehow managed to get through it. But I think those opportunities, I believe and know that I had the skills and knowledge to do that job Mm -hmm. and the job I'm currently in without the degree. Um, Now, the degree has been very rewarding um, and isn't something I regret and isn't something I wish I hadn't done, but I think I I gained skills through that, but I could have also been a very effective leader without it. And so I think we have to be of the mindset in higher ed that we can bring in leaders that don't necessarily just tick these boxes. Mm -hmm. And I hope, and I've tried to encourage um, people that I work with and others to really think about, well, is this candidate not a good candidate just because of they're missing this degree we Mm -hmm. feel like they should have. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think at um, East Tennessee State University, we've been able to make sure that we get to know the candidate Mm -hmm. and not just the candidate on paper based on the things we may read. Um, And we're willing to sometimes pivot processes uh, to say, well, maybe this person is worth coming through this interview process and maybe we need to change the requirements of the job to do that. And so I'm thankful for an environment that allows that type of conversation. Um, Now it does involve some back and forth with HR potentially to say, okay, we wrote a job description this way, but we have a candidate in the pool we'd like to consider. Can we relook at these qualifications? Um, And so I think it's both for me. I think the degree has been important. I don't want to say that that hasn't been a pivotal part of my journey, but I also believe that my experience brought a lot to the table. And I think that's very true for other folks that outside or inside higher ed, what they bring based on the things they've experienced um, are really crucial in their success, and we've got to give opportunity for that.
0: Right, and well, maybe it's that kind of flexibility that is the secret sauce there at East Tennessee State, because for those of us paying attention to the shifting landscape of higher ed, particularly as it has to do with enrollment, especially if you're paying attention to enrollment numbers across the state of Tennessee right now, they'd see declining enrollment. Even at your flagship institutions, the narrative could be written that fewer students are enrolling in college in the state of Tennessee right now. And yet, East Tennessee State's enrollment has been going the other direction you're not the flagship, you're not the kind of university that has unlimited resources for recruitment. You're an R2 regional institution. And so honestly, I think a lot of people would say, what is Heather doing over there that at East Tennessee that's working so well? My instinct is maybe it is that flexibility we talked about. I know from other folks I've spoken with on your campus um, How would I phrase this? I think I think they'd say they're given a lot of rope and a lot of freedom to get the job done. And I don't know if that's a product of your leadership style, but I know the people I talk to who work for you have shared with me what they feel like they have a great deal of is ownership over how they get the job done. What would you say has contributed to your team's success?
1: Yeah, I think it's several things, but what I'll start with is people coming first. Mm-hmm. Um, when we made some pretty swift changes as a campus and kind of redesigned um, enrollment management and, and what division it was in, it became the Division of Student Life and Enrollment. One of the biggest things that was said to me was, hey, go treat people the way you treat people. Go right. treat them the way they deserve to be treated. And what we've been able to do in those offices is really make sure people understand that they come first and that the work is important and that we want to fulfill the mission. We want to ensure people in our region can go to college, but if they can't go home and support their families and themselves about the things that are important to them and know that when something happens, they need to go and they need to deal with that, they're not gonna like their job. They're not gonna love coming to work and fulfilling the mission of ETSU. So. That's really where we started was people come first. This job is not more important than you. You are more important and you need to always be able to say when you need to go or you need to be able to say when right now you got to take a step back and you got to make you or your family or whatever it is a priority. Mm-hmm. And I, you could tell there was a shift in there work ethic. Mm. I like coming to work because I feel supported. I understand that when I'm traveling on the road three months of the year, barely home, that the leadership in this office is going to say to me, you need to take a week off and do nothing. You need to pay yourself back for this 24-hour life you've been living. Mm. And that wasn't always the way everyone felt. And so I think it started with that. It started with just a a feeling of caring from the top down and um, I would say that really truly resonates even above me that you know we have to care about each other or we will not be successful and COVID is that zap- exasperated that <laughs> you know there were moments I could tell people were like okay now I'm really not going to make it through this and we were like no people come first these numbers are not more important than we are. Um, And that's hard because we were terrified and we weren't things weren't gonna look good for everybody But we were all in it. I kept saying every institution in the country is dealing with this. Mm -hmm. This is not unique to us Um, And I think we were able to I don't think I know we were able to Continue to make people priority even through that huge challenge so that that's the number one thing is your staff has to know that they are the most important thing. I mean, I have people every week texting, calling, coming in saying, hey, this is happening. And my first reaction is you need to leave and we've got it and we'll pick up the pieces. And our team our team talks a lot about we are truly a team because we pick up the pieces for each other. And it's never a thought. If someone's out and there's an issue, we just deal with it and try to not bother them when we know they may be dealing with things that are more important. And so I really think that has been the catalyst for some of our success is just making sure that we care about each other.
0: Oh, it has to be. And a lot of campuses will spend marketing time, money, resources, trying to convince the world that a culture exists on their campus that the student should want to be a part of. And yet they'll skip right over actually creating that culture for the people who work and live their lives on these campuses day in and day out. And here's why there's often such an incongruency in the college marketing brochures and then the college campus experience once students walk into our offices. You can't take care of people when your own needs are aren't being taken care of. Not well. What do they say on airplanes? In the event of an emergency, put your mask on first, then help the child seated next to you. We have to take care of our own needs. So when you're taking care of your people and they feel taken care of, how does that pour out of them? I mean. I feel like if I were a student at East Tennessee State and I walked into the financial aid office on a Friday afternoon, your team may be tired. They may have already turned off their computer. They're ready for the weekend. But I don't feel like they would turn me away and say, come back on Monday.
1: Yeah. And and the team feels like, I mean... They joke with me because we, we work 8 to 4.30, and at 4.30, I'm running the halls like, what are you doing? Why are you still here? Why are you still here? Why are you still here? And, you know, our job does require us often to stay past normal hours or to work on the weekend or, or right. have weeks where we work a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. Um, but I'm very much trying to set a culture of, but you do have to go. You know, you, you've got to take a step back at some point, and this work will be here tomorrow, and we can manage that. And so I think you're absolutely right. Because we've been able to create such a culture of supporting each other, I, I know that our prospective students and families feel that because they tell us that. I mean, they say, you guys are talking about how much this place is home and how much people love being here, but we can see how much you guys care about each other. We, we just are very authentic in who we are, but I think it's because we've started from a place of supporting each other, and people can just see that playing out in the conversations we're having with them. And so I think that's our number one strength, is that we care about each other, and that is reflected in our recruitment strategy.
0: Now, would you say that's just your personal leadership style? Did you learn it from a mentor, or is there another leader on campus who has set that tone?
1: Um, I definitely think it's a natural style of mine. I think that's one of the reasons, like I mentioned earlier, that I was asked to step into this role because there was some folks not doing well and they needed some support. But I also will say 100 percent our president has set a tone. I mean, one of our mission statements is people come first and are treated with dignity and respect. And that is the value you hear talked about the most on our campus. And it is truly reflected from the president all the way down. People know it. People hear it. People see it he is that type of leader and everyone who reports to him is very much that type of leader and so it's easy it felt easy for me to be able to implement that swiftly in the admissions office when i first got there because i had the support above me when i was saying hey we gotta we gotta care about these people a little bit more we've Mm got to do some things to support them we've got to think about small wins and victories no one was questioning that everyone's saying you're absolutely right and i had had that. I had had that from my leaders in my positions previous to the one I got asked to be in. And so I always thought, you guys have always allowed my family to be number one. And so I'm thankful that I get to now do that for a whole staff of people. So it really is throughout the institution.
0: Well, if they haven't already, the HR team should get their hands on you because I'm ready to apply.
1: Well, you are welcome to come. We'd love to have you.
0: (laughs) I mean, Johnson City. East Tennessee as a whole is beautiful.
1: Oh, it is. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And the community is really supportive of our campus, which makes it a, a nice, easy thing to, to work together to better our
0: students. Shifting gears real quick, I had intended to ask you this from the get, even though you already touched on it a little bit. but. You came up through student life, through orientation. How is it you found yourself leading an enrollment management team? So
1: I, um, after I graduated from grad school, my very first job was an admissions counselor, Old Dominion University, Um, and that is close to where I'm from. And I spent three years recruiting in that world and um, enjoyed it, but I knew at the time, like, I don't think this, you know, I don't know that I'll work in admissions forever. Um, And so long story short, we were moving to the East Tennessee region and I started working at a, at the time it was King College. It's now King University, small private Christian institution. And I worked in new student and family type programs. But as you can imagine, small school lots of hats so I helped coordinate academic advising first year experience new student and family I mean I just gained so many skills through that experience it was it was a remarkable experience and then I always did want to be at the public institution close to me and so I got a job in um, first year programs at the time it morphed into new student and family Um, and I was in that for almost 10 years directing that unit Um, And there was just some changes that were coming at the institution realignment of division from, you know, uh, enrollment management being uh, more folk reporting up through academic affairs, student affairs, reporting directly to the president. And so we took those two things and made the division of student life and enrollment. And I was just asked to step into the seat as the director of admissions. And I was like, no, 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 I I don't know. I can't do that. And they were like, you were an admissions counselor. And I said, Uh Yeah, 15 years ago, like that isn't a recent experience (laughs) at a completely different institution. Um, And so I had a lot of anxiety about, and I don't think that I should be the person in this seat. And and really it went back to we just need someone who knows how to treat people. We need someone who goes down there and can just kind of see apart kind of what's been happening and how we work through it and so i started in that role in on an interim basis and was like okay they were like just give it a year see what you think and um, i also made it very clear that new student and family had to come with me Mm -hmm. it was kind of my baby and i had Mm -hmm. you know worked so hard and um wanted to ensure those two things should be working together very closely anyway and i had been and then the rest is history i was in that position about six months before they said okay will you do this permanently and at that point i was still pretty anxious and there but i also could see that i didn't have to be a complete expert to know that we could make some positive changes and it really was about people and um how we serve the community and really frankly what has also made it so successful was i was be able i was able to just bring in and build an amazing team so either build on what we already had in in people who were great and just hadn't been given opportunity to be in certain roles. And then we also brought in some folks that just collectively, all of those folks have just changed the game. And we were just in a really good spot. We have a great team.
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, so kind of crazy how it all happened. You couldn't, I would have... If you had asked me if I would have ended up in this role, I would have 100% told you no. Uh-huh. Yeah, I would have said, no way am I ever going to be in enrollment management. That's just uh-huh. not the pressure. And um, But we've had a lot of success, so it's been a fun ride. And we still have a lot to do. We still have a lot to fix and serve our students better. But but to have a good team to do it with makes it a lot easier.
0: It sounds like that first year in the job would have been rather challenging. One, just to accept a job, you're not feeling overly confident that you're the right person for. Someone's telling you, yes, you're the person we want for this. And it's great to hear that right, but if you don't believe it, there's still <laughs> it's still a hard thing to say yes to. And two, to get into the job and I'm guessing this probably happened more than once in that first year. You probably had moments where your fears were validated, where you were like, see, I told you I wasn't the right person for this job. How do you work through that imposter syndrome? Oh,
1: that's such a good question. I think in the beginning, it was a little relying on these other folks that had so much confidence, like, okay, they think I can do it, so I think maybe I can do it. Uh Um, But over time, it became clear to me, it was just a game of listening and helping. You know, it it became more about, you've got to listen to this team, some of which have been in this office for many years, Um, some of which haven't been in this office for many years, but are amazing and have a lot of really great thoughts about what we could be doing and so it really became about i mean we met as you can imagine we sat down with every single employee listened talked tried try to figure out where the pain points were where the positives were and then it became very clear pretty quickly what we needed to do where we needed to make changes who we needed to put in leadership roles where maybe we needed to realign positions because maybe their skill set wasn't meshing with what they were really responsible mm-hmm. for and maybe they were better suited to do this other thing mm-hmm. Um, And so I think my advice is one day at a time, Mm. one day at a time, but get to know the staff. These people know what's working and what's not Mm -hmm. um, and will share if you give them a safe space to do it. And so they have to feel safe. They have to trust you. And some of that took a while. I mean, guess you can imagine, you can't just call people in, some of which were frustrated Mm. that this change had occurred. Um, You've got to be able to, to let them see they can trust you. And some of that took longer with some than others Mm. and um but once you build that trust you can do anything you can make any changes work you can um get a team to get on board but also we never i felt like i never came in and said okay we're going to mandate these changes it really the whole team was a part of that process like what do we need to change Mm. and think big like pretend there's no resource restrictions pretend there's you know money is just coming at us what do we need to do and very quickly we learned like the crm for example we had it but we weren't basically using it other than to have our application Mm -hmm. and it was like this is a tool that's amazing Mm -hmm. if we use it correctly Mm -hmm. but we have to put the support around the one person who feels that responsibility and help them do their job and so it was a dream big And then let's really figure out what are the things we actually can do. And the team, I think, felt that they were a part of all of those decisions. And so that has to be how it works or you just won't get by it. You can't come in and just be like, we're going to change all these things. It's got to be the team helping to drive those decisions. So listening, learning.
0: I feel like one of the things that stunts universities from going from good to great is a very pervasive cultural expectation that in higher ed, as soon as you land a title, you're now expected to be the expert. And I've seen this from the top down. I've seen this with mm-hmm. administrators who oversee giant divisions and you can just look at their CV and you're like, I know you do not know Anything about half of this stuff. Mm -hmm. I've talked to VPs of enrollment who say, look, I oversee this data analyst who is running this system for me, and I don't know anything about technology, so I don't really know how to manage them. What do I do? And I think the challenge with this imposter syndrome is that we're setting ourselves up to Actually, be imposters. Right. It's like we have to pretend. We have to keep up this veneer that we are leaders because we are experts. And it creates two problems there. One, we're living a lie every day, and that's exhausting, and that leads to the feeling of burnout. But two, it creates a culture where the people who report to you people who are better experts in subjects that you are not these people become afraid to tell you what you don't know or they're afraid to correct you because it's like well she's the boss and it looks like at ETSU you've created a safe space where people understand you're not there to be the end-all, be-all, know-it-all of the office. You're there to be a coach, to be a guide. You're there to be a team leader, but you win or lose as a team. And I'm, I think I'm starting to understand how your team is hitting your enrollment numbers.
1: Yeah, and that, that's really so true. I find myself every week in a meeting saying, I'm going to say something, but if y'all don't agree with me, I need you to say you don't agree with me. And, <laughs> and I think we have. We've created a culture where it's okay for us to not agree yes. because we end up getting to a better place. Like, okay, well, why don't you agree? Why don't I agree? Let's really talk about what that means for our students and the experience they're having coming into this institution. So it, it really is just about having that culture and... Um, And understanding there are people in the office that bring so much to the table. So we meet often and just what worked, what didn't work this past year, what should we look? And everyone's voice is a part of that, not just certain people. And I think that's really helped us
0: move the needle. Any advice for someone who has been listening to your story today and it resonates? They're like, wow, I find myself in a job I had not really planned on, but I'm really loving this career. And I'd like to take that next step, I think. What is something they could start doing right now to sharpen their irons?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely being knowledgeable about what's happening out there. So whatever the space you're in, if it's enrollment management understanding the landscape throughout the country not just in your little niche part of the country and so reading the chronicle and and higher ed and whatever the the things that speak to you are you know doing that on a regular basis but also just talking to your colleagues on campus but also you I cannot be successful without people at other institutions you know and being able to say what are you hey we've got this thing we're struggling with how are you managing how are you doing because you just learn so much about other institutions like you've got to be able to understand how other institutions function to be able to set yourself up to go to other institutions to to broaden your scope of understanding because if I'm only East Tennessee all day long I'm not understanding that there are other ways to do things and so and it's hard because I mean I love ETSU I, I see myself there for a long time um, and sometimes I'm like, oh, no, am I going to get trapped in this mindset of only this one institution? But I think as long as you're talking to other folks, coming to conferences, meeting people, broadening your network, you're really helping yourself be more marketable because you're, you're able to reflect what it may be like at other institutions. Um, so that's a huge piece of advice. Always have a tribe of people not ju- at your institution. You 100 percent need it. Uh, but you also need people at other institutions.
0: How do you create that tribe?
1: It's hard. I would say this is one of the hardest things in our profession. First, I'm lucky to have gone to um, a master's program that was a really small cohort of people that are literally now spread throughout the country, much of which are still in higher ed, and bring with them a plethora of experiences. So these are people, if I called up today and was like, hey, have an issue, or hey, I'm thinking about coming to your part of the country, what suggestions do you have for jobs and things, I could call. So I'm lucky to have that. Um, attending conferences I would say this has been my biggest professional challenge in this role is finding the time to attend professional conferences Um, and I pushed hard this year like I'm going to this conference and I'm going to pay for it early so that it can't change because our worlds in the fall are just crazy like we don't have time to leave um, but when I have those opportunities, I take every moment during that opportunity to make a connection. So I'm leaving this conference that I'm at right now with, I don't know, 15 cards of people that I've already connected just in a two day period, two and a, a day and a half period of time that I now am like, OK, I can. They at least know my face. They've seen me. If I reach out, they're not going to be like shocked. Who is this person? And so I think it's just that being aggressive about how you make relationships with other people because you'll often find They want the same thing. They need people at other institutions, too. Um, And then people you work with on campus know a lot of people. So, I mean, even just as simple as you introducing me to someone outside, like, that's a small connection, and I need to remember that person's name and where they are, so if I ever, you know, want to reach out, I have that moment that I met them. So, just being very intentional about how you make those connections, and even such a small connection will still be valuable when you reach out to that person.
0: Yeah. Any icebreaker tips for those folks who are just terrified of networking? (laughs) Like, how do you walk up to someone and say, I'd like to know you? (laughs) I'd
1: like to know you.
0: I'm awkward. Um, Oh,
1: that's a good question. It's hard if if you're me and you're an extrovert and so you don't mind it. It's Uh it's hard to get my mind in a place of not being that person. uh Um, I, I really think it's just like Um, in this pre-conference I was at yesterday we had all sat at a table we hadn't had a lot of time to talk because we were listening the whole time and right towards the end it took one person saying hey did you guys bring cards and everyone was just like yes and it was this trading of cards and you could tell that everyone wanted to do it but had just not felt like it was appropriate timing until one person said it and so it can be as simple as that hey do you have a business card would you take my business card i'd love to connect sometime i mean it's as simple as that now you've got that piece of information you know you made an in-person contact with them. Um, And so always have cards as much as I think we think a lot about like, oh, do you need a business card nowadays? It's an easy way to break the ice and not feel uncomfortable. Like I've got your contact information now. I'll reach out if I need you. I know what your title is. It's all right here for me. I don't have to remember everything about you, you know? Um, And so I think that's a simple way to engage with other people.
0: And how do you maintain a tribe so that you're not just reaching out when you need something, so it's not just a transactional relationship.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I think your tribe can look differently. So some of your tribe is truly people you've barely met and uh you know, you're you might reach out ask a few questions about how they're doing but it is a little bit more transactional and then i think there's got to be members of your tribe that are a lot deeper so i've been fortunate years ago when i was in parent programming i got very involved in AHEP, which is a parent programming professional organization i met who are now some of my best friends and so i made those connections through that conference but went way the extra mile all of us did Um, so i see these women once a year on a girls weekend and so oh, Yeah. And so I, I think it's gonna look different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But the tribe that you have that are more people you've made real connections with, you talk to on a regular basis, you gotta call them and just ask how they're doing. You gotta know about things in their life. Like if they have a family and what are what are those things you can find out about their life and, and ask about aspects outside of just what they're doing in their day to day work. Um and so I think it's just going that extra mile to show you care about them as a person and not just them as a colleague that can help you when you're struggling. <laughs> so I've been lucky. I, I have a core group of five women I met through a professional organization that have become some of my best friends that I travel the country going to see different parts of the country with every year. And so, um, so your tribe can be really de- deep and it can be more surface level, but you still have got to make it more than just those transactions you talked about.
0: Thank you, Heather. As always, fun and insightful. I expect all of our listeners will take something away from today's conversation. That was Dr. Heather Levesque of East Tennessee State University. I'm Creighton Dent, and if this was your first time joining us, I invite you to subscribe to participate in our daily talks, a journey of self-improvement as campus leaders. We're on every platform, dealer's choice. Our colleges need more great leaders like Heather. Won't you walk with us as we grow into those leaders and do the work together here on the Campus Leader Podcast.